So we're starting off uh, this new series today, just four weeks here. And if that that phrase or that word, the incarnation, is new to you, I, I just want to explain it a little bit. Um, the incarnation is the belief that God became flesh, that God assumed human nature and was born as a baby and grew into a man. Okay? Jesus Christ was the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. And this is you know, central Christian doctrine, that this G- Jesus, fully man, fully God, somehow, you know, was he, and this is what we believe, that he, he was fully man, fully God. He wasn't like 50% man and 50% God. No, he was 100% God and 100% man at the same time. He wasn't a man who became a God. He wasn't a demigod. He wasn't a ghost or spirit or a God in disguise, right? Like, he, he really was a human, with all of the same things that we have and the same experience that we have in our humanity. And he really was God. And so, for the most part, the church has accepted the incarnation, right? It's, it's mostly regarded, though, as a mystery that we can't really understand, and rightly so. You know, Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 1, the angels are baffled and long to look into such things, and humans can't fathom what God has done in the incarnation. It is a mystery, right? It's, it's huge, and the reality is no one but God can grasp its enormity. Um, it's, it's yet such a grand mystery is not meant to be given up on, right? Like we're not, so it's not like out of touch, but we actually get to enter into it and explore it the rest of our lives. Sadly, a lot of the church, I think, in our present day especially, hasn't taken time to explore that and, and think about it and understand the implications of what the incarnation means for history, what it means for us and the world around us, nor has much of the church focused on, on what the incarnation means for the, the church as the, as the expression of God on the earth. And so we want to talk about these things and think about them through this series again and, and just be fresh in that. Sound good? Cool. So let's just uh, pray real quick. I'll pray again and jump into part one of our series. So Father, I thank you for today. I thank you that you hear us when we speak to you. My phone's going off. <laughs> That's ridiculous. Yeah. Father, I thank you for today. I thank you that you hear us when we speak to you. God, I ask that you'd let us know and experience you more and more. Holy Spirit, open our eyes to see. Let us see Jesus as the creating word who became flesh and the Lamb of God for us. Jesus, I thank you that you're present here right now. We give you preeminence, God first place in everything. We desire you. God, we long for you. God, I ask that you'd stir up a holy hunger in us uh, today and this week for more of you, yearning and desiring you to, to be present in our lives in new ways. We just surrender. We give control. We give doing things in our own strength to you, Jesus. We ask you be king, God. Amen. So just to start off the series this morning, I want to focus in and talk about the storyline of the Bible, and specifically the redemptive arc of Scripture and the the arrival of Jesus. Obviously, I can't go into the whole Old and New Testament in the next 25 minutes, right? Like, that's not really, you know, doable. But I just want to lay out uh, some main ideas and points so that you can dive into them later and chew on them, right? So I'm going to give you some homework right now. 
you know, along with the devotional that, that Pam talked about, and that was awesome. I'm excited to do that. But I just want to give you some more homework for this week. I want you to write it down. Read Genesis chapters 1 through 3 and John chapter 1. Genesis 1 through 3 and John chapter 1. Yep. With this idea of the advent and the arrival and what that means in, in, in all of history. All right? So let's talk about the storyline of the Hebrew Bible. When we think about the Bible, right, we can get pretty overwhelmed. Uh, you know, it's, uh, this was uh, just the New Testament, but uh, the Bible's usually pretty big if you have one. It's uh, a thick book, right? Uh, we have to understand, though, that part of our identity as believers, as followers of Jesus, um, it, is really to care about these ancient texts. It's part of our identity as believers, to care about these ancient stories from another culture. And the problem is that they're difficult to read sometimes. And many times it's hard to understand, you know, for a lot of reasons. Number one, it's written in a different language or different languages, then translated into our language, you know. Uh, and sometimes old English is hard to understand, you know, if you have one of those uh, translations. Secondly, it's written to people in different years. And so, you know, depending on what page you flip to in the Bible and then flip to another, it might be a hundred years, might be hundreds of years, might be a thousand years in between, right? And so, you know, there's that going on. And it's written to different cultures and it's written in different contexts by multiple authors. And it's a work, you know, it's a work of literary genius at the same time. And like Moby Dick and East of Eden, it's intense, it's, in, it's rewarding, but it's intense and it's not always easy reading. Let's just be honest, right? Like, it's not always easy reading. We tend to look at the Bible and, and make, try to make sense of it in our own context without taking time to understand the audience or the condition or the lens, you know, that, that the scriptures are written, who they're written to or who they're written by, right? We don't always think about that. My guess that for most of us, our experience, you know, in the Bible, in this room, has been through, or at least started through a theological framework that went something like this. You're put on earth to glorify God, but you screwed up, um, you missed the marks, and sin is there, right? And because of sin, you deserve death. Jesus came and he took that penalty for you. And if you believe and have faith, then one day you can go to heaven. Okay? Usually we, we have that framework. And what's the issue with that? Isn't that true? Well, it's just, yeah, it's totally true. That is totally true. But the issue with reading the Bible like that is that through that lens alone, it leaves out a whole lot of things. It leaves, uh, or it leaves us with like no place to put the things that we read and we don't understand. We don't, you know, we don't, we don't we kind of feel disconnected from some of those stories when we read them. And that's because that framework comes from an individualized version of creation and the fall and, and salvation and going to heaven. And in that mindset, it's all about me and my individual life. And so it skips the people of Israel. It skips the redemption of the nations and the world, and it skips the cosmic idea of what this is all unto if we read it through that lens. And so it's important to get, uh, get the right framework. Oh, and so, you know, if we, if we have that theological framework and we're said, you know, it's individualized, cool, now go read the, the Bible, with that in mind, we miss out on a lot. And so we end up, you know, being drawn to specific parts, and we only connect with those parts because everything else is like, I don't know what to do with it. This. I don't know where it fits in. But for the disciples of Jesus, the followers of Jesus, um, the apostles, you know, the Old Testament was their, their story. It was part of their story. They grew up being soaked in that, living that out 
in every part of their lives and, and, and trying to understand that. And when Jesus opened their eyes to the realities of happening in, happening in front of them, it clarified what they grew up with, right? It brought, it brought this whole picture so much clearer. And it's important that we take a hold of that, take hold of the scriptures in a similar way. That we're part of something way bigger than just our own lives. The Bible, it's old, it's huge, it's complex. But despite that, we can look at the first page. And if you look at the last page, you'll notice something that I think that'll help you connect. The first words, right, in the Bible, we know this, right? In the beginning. And the last words is that they, at the end of the book, you know, the end of Revelation, is that they reign forever and ever. This idea that the beginning and then they reign forever and ever. And so what kind of books begin and end like that, you know? Like, which, which kind of books are big? And they have that kind of thing. They, it's narratives, but what kind of narrative? It's, you know, a huge book with lots of, you know, a cast of hundreds. It's an epic, okay? So, like, if you ever read an epic, you know, it's, it's this kind of thing that's really popular in the ancient world, even medieval world. These great epics like Les Miserables, War and Peace, The Cimmerillion, or Lord of the Rings, um, or Wheel of Time, if you've read those, if you're a fantasy guy. Um, these epic novels have lots of characters, right? And there's nations, and they're spanning over periods of time. And that's what we're talking about with the Bible, right? It's a large narrative with, with interwoven main plots and subplots, but they all tie together and find unity and coherence in the person of Jesus. Right? So what you, when you see what the main story is and the main movements of it, you can recognize where you are no matter what page you flip to. You can find your place in the story, your coordinates, your spot on the map. The Bible, because it's so large, it's, it's kind of rarity to read front to back, right? We're not going to sit there and just read it front to back most of the time. So when we're jumping in, somewhere in the middle, it means you need to know where you're at. And so where you're at in the story is important. And Jesus is the context. He's the, he's the one that we see and read through the Old Testament and the New Testament and, and understand and try to see Jesus is the central point of this. Obviously, pages 1 and 2 in Genesis are really important because Jesus, on a number of occasions, refers back to them. And there's reason for that. They set the narrative world of this story. They set the purpose of all of this and what the purpose of humans in this story. And Genesis 1 and 2 provide the template for the entire biblical story and showing the ideal design of God, what he has for the world, as a desire for royal human partners, kings and queens and creation who are going to rule together with God in a world of abundance. And in Genesis 1, 26 through 28, the reader is told that humanity, male and female together, constitute the royal image of God. And that they're appointed by God to rule on God's behalf and receive his blessing as they multiply it across the earth. And in Genesis, so flip the page to... The, Page 2 in Genesis 2 through 5, chapters 2 through 5, proceed to narrate how these first human characters are given the opportunity to rule together as God's image and show how they foolishly forfeited this. They forfeit it, and they give, give up this opportunity. Though God gave them dominion, and, and my, my phone's going off again. I think I have a timer set. Man, I can't yell at myself for that. So God gives humans dominion on the earth. They give them this, his authority, and, and they're, but they're deceived by this demonic lying serpent. 
they actually had the authority to cast out this, this demonic lying serpent is a spiritual being that, that desires to overthrow God's plans and receive his own worship and his, and his, exalt, his own exaltation over God. And this is the, the enemy of our souls. It's the same one. At this, in these pages, in these beginning pages, it's the same enemy that we have. When they listen and act in this deception, they end up coming out of the covering of God and taking to themselves sin and come under the reign of death and the evil one. And humanity's God-given definition, their identity and their destiny is hijacked by this enemy. And they begin to make idols in their own image and worship demonic gods. And knowingly and unknowingly, they begin to look at everything else but God to give them definition and identity. And they continue this, this, this cycle um, about making decisions based on good and bad in their own terms and their own understanding and their own, what's good in their own eyes and under the influence of the evil one. And so when, you, when you're reading in these chapters in Genesis and, and forward, even when you see God giving extra grace and extra measures of, of protection, we read that human nature is so bent at this point because of what happened. They, they're twisting God's words. They, they're believing lies. They're, they're in doubt about God's goodness, and they think God's holding out on them, and they really act in destructive ways and disrespectful ways to each other and to God. And sadly, that's how the story of Israel kind of happens. There's things that are happening here. God gives them a lot of grace, and they, they keep going back to that. So you finish the Old Testament story, right? You read the rest of the books, and you're like, man, I thought we were in a bad situation on page three, but then you p- turn to page 593, and you're like, oh, man, we really need help. Like, we really need help. And as you read, you know, this is a roller coaster of things in the lives of the people and the history of the people of Israel and the world around them, it's so, clearly that, <laughs> so clear that humanity needs help. But that's not the only thing that's happening, right? Throughout, we see God's nature on display through the lives of individuals and incredible acts of salvation and, and intervention and, and promises for his people and a foreshadowing of his ultimate act of intervention and redemption of the whole world. So what was God's answer to the fall of humanity and their, independ- their impending death? It was, what was God's answer to the great schism that happened? We, God, we read that God makes a promise to those, even those first people, all the way back in Genesis, to Adam and Eve, after they forfeited all those things that God gave them, he makes a promise to them that one day their seed, their descendants would crush that serpent. He promises that. And so through the rest of the book, there's this redemptive arc that's happening in Scripture where God is coming. He's promised that he's going to come and make things right. And so we see all these things happening, this roller coaster, like I said, and (laughs) the first two-thirds of the book of the Bible, Scripture all points to this coming seed, this coming king. And he chooses one of their descendants, a man named Abraham, and makes a covenant with him. And God's promise to Abraham and his children and his grandchildren is that he's going to form a nation from them that will one day bless all the nations of the world. He's not only going to redeem their line, but he's going to redeem every line, every people. He promises that a king would come from their descendants who would make all things right, atoning for sin, repairing fellowship with God, restoring the knowledge of God, and crushing the powers of darkness. And as we read these promises we realize that God's solution has to be something remarkable, right? 
You get to the end of the Old Testament, there has to be something remarkable, something close, some kind of close joining of God and humanity. That if humanity are ever going to get it right, they have to have God transform them in some way into a different kind of human, basically. And that's what the Old Testament prophets are all about, they're talking about. We need a recreation of the human heart and mind, total renewal and transformation. And they point to this one, this coming king who's going to do this. He's going to bring out the end of the world as they know it and start something new. The story of the Old Testament ends and you're waiting for this leader. You're hoping that God's going to do something just to change humans on a fundamental level. And the Bible is the record of how God brings forth the promised one. We see the heart of God on display through this redemptive arc in Scripture and it comes to fullness in Jesus Christ. This is the purpose of history that heaven and earth come together in a royal human. For centuries, dating all the way back to Genesis 2, scriptures are pointing to this coming day, right? And Advent, like we talked about, it, it, what it means is this arrival. It signifies the start of an event or the arrival of a person. Christmas isn't just about baby Jesus, right? We understand that. It's about the arrival of God into the human story like never before. Humans are a part of God's story all along, but now God is part of our story like never before. The incarnation reveals the passionate heart, the pursuing heart of God, and it demonstrates his unrestrained love. He's going to go to every length to save us. He's going to every length to save us. He initiates covenantial love, and he secures it through his unyielding desire for us, the objects of his affection. The incarnation makes it possible, makes a possible linear, makes the Scripture's linear rather than cyclical, right? Makes this understanding that it's all moving towards this thing, and it's all because of this one that's coming. It's all unto something. All human experience matters. History is not cyclical. It's moving us somewhere. It moves us to the incarnation of Jesus. And it will move us forward to his return. The Advent is about the redemption of the entire world, salvation, restoration of humanity, and the initiation of a kingdom that's never going to end. It's about God dwelling with humanity, partnered with humanity. It's about the creator becoming one with his creation. Jesus comes to reveal God clearly to humanity, to show us what he's really like. He comes to destroy the works of the enemy and bring healing and deliverance and end to those horrible things that we've done to each other for, for thousands of years. He brings us into new life, a new relationship with God, new identity, new definition. We don't have to look at anything else for identity and definition any longer. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's the crowned king over all. He's the way to Messiah. So I want to show a video that kind of sums up the story really well, um, the story of the Bible and the redemptive ark. So could you play that video? There's this crazy story at the beginning of the Bible. We have Adam and Eve, and they're in the Garden of Eden. And everything in this garden is great. It's exactly as it should be, except there's this one tree that they're told by God not to eat from because it's dangerous and it will kill them. So that's it. Uh, avoid this fruit tree and we're fine. Right. It seems pretty simple. But in this garden, there's a snake, and it starts telling a different story. It says that if you eat of this tree, it's not going to kill you. 
In fact, it's going to make you become like God. And Adam and Eve, they believe the snake and they eat the fruit. And because of this, the goodness of the garden is tragically lost and evil and death enters into God's good world. Now, why is there a talking snake in the garden? I mean, this thing is a problem. Yeah, it's very strange. And even more strange is the fact that the Bible doesn't say why or how this thing even got there. It just presents the snake as this creature who's in rebellion against God and that wants to get other people to doubt God's goodness and lead them on a path towards death. And so whatever this snake is, it's the source of evil that pervades our world and our lives even still today. But there is some hope because right here in the story, God makes this really interesting promise to Adam and Eve. That someone is going to come in the future, a son of Eve. And this guy's going to come and he's going to crush the serpent's head and destroy evil at its source. However, during this battle, the serpent is going to bite this guy's heel. So it's like a mutual destruction. Yeah, it's this very strange but beautiful promise. And it's just left hanging there until the next key moment in the story when God singles out this guy named Abraham and says that through his family, goodness and blessing is going to be restored back to all of the nations of the world. And as we follow this family, we get to one of Abraham's great grandsons, this guy named Judah. And he receives this promise that a king is going to come from his line and that the whole world's going to follow this king and he's going to bring peace and harmony and there'll be lots of food and wine and milk and vineyards and it's going to be awesome. The first king that we meet from the line of Judah is a guy named King David. And he's a hero. Maybe he is the snake crusher. But it turns out that David is infected with the same evil as the rest of humanity. He never crushes the snake, just the opposite. However, God makes a promise to David that this king is going to eventually come from his line. But as you go on in the story, one by one, each generation of his sons, they're just total chumps. They give in to the snake, they choose evil, they go after money and sex and power and following other gods. Things get so bad that they run the nation of Israel right into the ground and the big bad empire of Babylon just takes them out. And so now there are no more kings to even fulfill this promise. So it seems like the whole plan is lost. But during these dark days, there's this crazy group of guys called prophets. And they just kept talking about this coming king and reminding us of the promise that he'll come, he'll defeat evil, he'll restore the garden. Now, one specific prophet, Isaiah, he tells us more about why this king is bitten. Isaiah says that the promised king receives this wound because of humanity's evil and that it kills him. But then all of a sudden he comes back and Isaiah says it's because he suffered this wound that he can now become a source of healing to other people. But the Old Testament ends and the snake crushing king that everyone's been talking about never shows up. And this is why when the New Testament begins, it introduces us to Jesus of Nazareth not as some random guy, but as someone who comes to fulfill these specific ancient promises. Yeah, we learn that he's from the line of David, Judah, and Abraham. And he goes around Israel announcing that the goodness of God's kingdom is here now. And he begins confronting the effects of evil on people by healing them, by forgiving them of their sins and evil. Many people are now believing that this is, in fact, the promised king. But Jesus began telling his closest followers that he was going to become king and bring peace by taking the full effect of humanity's evil into himself. The fatal snake bite wound. Exactly. And so it seems like the serpent wins. 
And this story actually would be a tragedy except for what happens next. Jesus rises from the dead. And now Jesus has the power over evil and death for himself. And so the rest of the New Testament is then making this claim that Jesus's power over evil and death has now become available to us to begin confronting the effects of evil in our lives. But even still, death and evil are a real problem in our world all around us. And so the story of the Bible ends by describing this future day when Jesus comes back and he finishes the job. He destroys the snake once and for all and he restores the goodness of the garden here on earth. Yeah, that kind of sums up what we've been talking about really well. That's awesome. Jesus is awesome. A story that we're a part of is so much bigger than the situations and circumstances that we're facing. Bigger than our heartaches and pains. It's bigger than the problems of the nation right now. Bigger than what we're currently seeing and feeling and know. And the answer to all of these things and more are found in the person of Jesus. He's the center of the story, and we get to be part of his story. Our lives are woven into it because he wanted them to be. You're part of that story because he wanted you to be part of that story. It's the same, uh, that same redemptive arc of Scripture is fully extending and fully breaking into our lives. And Jesus is, wants to reign and rule over all. If you've never experienced that, if you don't know Jesus as your Savior and your Redeemer, if you haven't made Jesus the Lord of your life, the King of your heart, if you want to be part of his story, I want to invite you to do that this morning. We, we said we're going to do this every time that we preach, that we're going to bring this invitation. And so I just want to encourage you, if you've never done that before, this is the most important decision of your life. It's bold. It's a bold statement, but this is the most important decision of your life. It's the meaning of life. It's a new life. He wants to share with you his life. God loves you so much, and he wants you to know that and feel it without a doubt. And he invites you to be part of his story. He wants to become the main character in yours. And he wants to know you. He wants to, you to know him. And he promises to never leave you and never forsake you. He's inviting you to be part of his family. And so if, if you want to accept that invitation today, I want you to just stand. And the reason I want you to stand is to help you make a lasting memory of that today so that you can say, you know, Sunday, November 27th, 2022 was the day that my life changed. That something new began. I entered into a relationship with Jesus. It became part of his family and I haven't looked back since. So if you haven't done that, I just want to invite you to stand. And everyone in this room has done that. That's good. And we talked about this, that we're preaching to those empty seats where we can invite our friends who haven't done that. And so we can share this, this story with them and say, hey, you're meant to be part of this. And so just to think about that. To conclude today, I want to just turn to Colossians chapter 1. If everybody could turn to Colossians chapter 1. Paul's writing to the church in Colossae here after his introduction in the letter. He prays some really good prayers, and if you want some really good prayers, read through those and pray them over yourself and your family um, in the first beginning of the part of the chapter. 
And then he begins to basically sum up for them the whole arc of redemption here. He's reminding them the fullness of the story, what they're part of, so they won't be deceived by the humanistic teachings of the day that they're, that's going on around them. So we're going to pick up in verse 6, and then we're going to skip down to uh, verse 12 and read from there. But verse 6, Colossians 1, verse 6. This is out of the Passion Translation. I like the Passion Translation because it, it's a paraphrased version, but here he, the, the paraphraser, the translator, uses the same language that we've been using and ties it all together. So here, verse 6. This is the wonderful message that is being spread everywhere, powerfully changing hearts through the earth, just like it's changed you. Every believer of this good news bears the fruit of eternal life as they experience the reality of God's grace. Jumping over to verse 12. Your hearts can soar with joyful gratitude when you think, about, think of how God has made you worthy to receive the glorious inheritance freely given to us by living in the light. He has rescued us completely from the tyr- tyrannical rule of darkness and translated us into the kingdom realm of his beloved son. For the son, for in the son, all of our sins are canceled. We have the release of redemption through his very blood. He is the divine portrait. Jesus is the divine portrait, the true likeness of the invisible God. He's the firstborn and heir of all creation. For in him was created the universe of things, both in the heavenly realm and on the earth. And all that's seen and all that's unseen, every seat of power, realm of government, principality, and authority in it all exists through him and for his purpose. He existed before anything was made, and now everything finds completion in him. He is the head of his body, which is the church, and since he is the beginning and the firstborn heir in resurrection, he is the most exalted one, holding first place in everything. For God is satisfied to have all of his fullness dwell in Christ, and by the blood of his cross, everything in heaven and on earth is brought back into himself, back into its original intent, restored into innocence again. Even though you were once distant from him, living in the shadows of your evil thoughts and actions, he re- reconnected you back to himself. He released his supernatural peace to you through the sacrifice of his own body as a sin payment on your behalf so that you would dwell in his presence. And now there's nothing between you and the Father, God. For he, see, for he sees you as holy, flawless, and restored. If you continue in advance in faith, assured a firm foundation to grow upon, Never be shaken from this hope of the gospel that you believed in. This is the glorious news I've preached all over the world. That's his message. That's our message. That's what we're part of. It's an amazing thing that God has done. Jesus, who was fully God, took on full humanness. And as such, he was physically a representation of God on the earth. Both the fullness of heaven and the fullness of earth came to dwell in the person of Jesus, joining heaven and earth together forever. And he's brought this redemption and this peace and modeled actually how we should live. And so as we, we talk through the rest of the series, we're going to talk about, about what Jesus has actually done for humanity and, and his actual humanness, like in touch with things that we go through every day of our lives. We're going to continue to talk about that. And then we're going to talk about how he's left the church, his body, with his mission. And so he, he's incarnated in the church as well. And so we're going to talk about what that looks like for us in our mission and, that, and what it looks like for us in this church, like our missional purpose in the, in the community of Oxford and to our families and the people around us. So I just want everybody to stand up. Worship band, go ahead and come up.
We get to demonstrate this, this love. We get to embody the work and message of Jesus. And through us, he's going to be seen. And so I just want to just pray for us real quick as we go into worship. Father, I thank you for what you've done. that you've never been far away, that you've been at work all through time. So Jesus, I ask that you would pull us into this story even more, that we find our place in it. God, I ask in this season that we we would see this incarnation, what it means, God. We would get wrapped up in the depth of what you've done, God, and who you are. Jesus, I thank you. You're King of kings, you're Lord of lords. We worship you, God. We exalt your name. Make it so real to us, God. Jesus' name.